Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller. And folks, uh, if you're hearing this message, I am probably out having just had a baby. So this is actually a pre-recorded message. It's a two-part series. So you're going to hear one part this week, a second part next week, and it's titled Raising Digital Natives. And it's a presentation that I do to help equip parents on what's going on with our children and technology, how we should view technology in our homes, and just some practical tips and helps for parents as they're kind of wading into the waters. Um, A lot of parents nowadays, they're my age, they're millennials, and millennials had do we do have our most vulnerable years growing up typically we were not inundated with the technology we still had dial up there was slow internet we didn't have smartphones yet so we're not exactly digital natives but we are for sure raising digital natives so it seems somewhat overwhelming and so i go through some the impact of technology on young people in these in these two presentations and then kind of how parents can respond to it. And so I hope you enjoy and I look forward to being back with you all in just a few weeks. I'm Hannah Miller. I'm uh, Dr. Robert and Carlotta Jackson's fourth daughter and favorite. But um, I, we do have the podcast, More Than Medicine. Uh, Dad does a great job on that. I have a podcast, The Hannah Miller Show. It's a little bit more political, um, but if you enjoy what you hear this morning, you can find that in the iTunes store as well. So let's imagine a seventh grader. He's a quiet kid. He's polite. With a few friends, just your ordinary, run-of-the-mill 12-year-old. We'll call him Brian. Brian's halfway through seventh grade, and for the first time, he's starting to wonder where he falls in the social hierarchy, at school, at a church, with his, in his community, in his neighborhood. He's thinking about his clothes a little bit, his shoes too. He's conscious of how others perceive him, but he's not that conscious of it. He is seventh grade. He goes home each day from the hours of 3 p.m. to 7 a.m. He has a break from the social pressures of middle school. Most evenings, Brian doesn't have a care in the world, and the year is 2008. Brian has a cell phone, but it's off most of the time. After all, it doesn't do much. If friends want to get in touch, they call the house. And the only time that large groups of 7th graders are actually gather is generally school dances, and if he's not comfortable with that, he doesn't have to go. Now, let's imagine Brian on a typical weekday. He goes downstairs, has breakfast with his family, he goes to school and has a fine morning in his 7th grade classroom, and walks down to the lunchroom at precisely 12 p.m. There's a slick of water on the tiled floor near the fountain at the back of the cafeteria. A few 8th graders know about it, and they're laughing as yet another student slips in the water and falls. Brian buys a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch. It comes with a tomato soup that no one ever eats. He polishes off the sandwich and heads to the trash can to dispose of the soup. When his sneakers hit the water slick, he slips just like all the other kids. The tomato soup goes up in the air and comes down on Brian, pouring tomato soup all over his lap. Nearby, at the table of eighth graders, is a boy named Mark. Mark laughs. He laughs at Brian the same way all the other boys laugh at Brian. They laugh because they're older. They know something the younger kids don't know. They laugh at the slapstick nature of what just happened. The spilled tomato soup is just a bonus. 
The fall is a misfortune for Brian. That's all. It's not an asset for Mark. A few kids hear the laughter and look over, but Brian gets up quickly, rushes off to the gym, and changes his pants. Mark tries telling the story to a friend later. The friend doesn't really get it because he wasn't there. Uh, he can't picture it. So after lunch, Brian returns to his homeroom in his gym shorts. No one seems to notice the change. He breathes a sigh of relief. The cafeteria follows behind him when Brian heads home after school. Home life is completely separate from school life. Brian doesn't think about the incident again. Only a few people saw it. It's over. Now let's imagine Brian again. Same kid, same family, same school, community. He's still in seventh grade, but this time it's 2018. When Brian sits down for breakfast, he takes out his iPhone and opens up Instagram. Brian from 2008 is what was wondering about his position in the social hierarchy. The Brian from 2018, he knows. He can see it right there on the screen. He has fewer followers than the other kids at school and in his neighborhood. Brian thinks about it all morning at school. At precisely 12 p.m., he heads to the cafeteria. He buys a grilled cheese sandwich, and he buys tomato soup that no one ever eats. At the back of the lunchroom, Mark sits with the other eighth graders. He holds a shiny new iPhone. Mark has had an iPhone for five years. He's got all the apps, Twitter, Instagram, in 2018, Snapchat, now TikTok is pretty much the thing. He's got lots of followers, too. A few years ago, Mark made his first post on Instagram. It was a picture of a remote control car. Mark checked, it checked Instagram an hour after putting up that first picture. A bright red dot showed on that app. He clicked it. Someone had liked the picture of his car. Mark felt validated. A little bit of dopamine was released into Mark's brain. He checked the picture again an hour later. Sure enough, another like, another little dopamine hit. He felt even better. For a while, pictures of the remote control car were sufficient. They generated enough likes to keep Mark happy. He no longer actually enjoyed driving the remote control car, but he got plenty from seeing those likes pile up. Then something started to happen. The likes stopped coming in. People didn't seem interested in the pictures of the car anymore, and this made Mark unhappy. He missed the likes. He needed them back. He needed more exciting pictures. So he decided to drive his car right out into the middle of the road. He had his little brother film the entire scene of his car getting flattened by another car coming down the street. Mark didn't even bother to collect it. He just grabbed his phone and posted the video, and it was only minutes later that it was already getting likes. He felt better. Now it's eighth grade, and Mark has become addicted to social media. Sure, he needs a lot more likes to get that same feeling, but that's okay. That just means he needs more content. Content no one else has, and Mark has learned that the best content, the, the content that gets the most likes, is of things and embarrassing things that happen to his classmates. When he notices the water slick at the back of the cafeteria, Mark is ready. Each time someone walks by and falls, their misfortune becomes an asset for Mark. A part of Mark wants them to fall. He hopes they fall. Brian walks across the cafeteria with his soup, minding his own business. Suddenly, his feet slide out from underneath him. The tomato soup goes up in the air and down on Mark's lap. He's so embarrassed that when he rushes off to the gym to change, he doesn't even notice that Mark is filming. Mark doesn't even know who he just filmed. 
and he doesn't care. It's not his fault that the kid fell. He's just the messenger. That's what he tells himself. He gets the video uploaded to Snapchat and has it up on Instagram seconds later. By then, the likes are already coming in. Dopamine is flooding Mark's brain. There's a comment on Instagram late already. What a loser! And Mark gives the comment a like. Gotta keep your audience happy, right? This has been a rewarding lunch. Mark sits back and refreshes his feed over and over and over again until the bell rings. Meanwhile, Brian heads back from the bathroom having changed into his gym shorts. He's still embarrassed about the fall, but he didn't think anybody saw it, so he doesn't care. But when he walks into the homeroom, a lot of people look at him, and one girl is holding her phone at an awkward angle. Is she, is she taking a picture? He can't tell. Happened too fast. He's not sure. Class begins. Brian is confused because people keep slipping their cameras out, their phones out, and, and looking back at him. So he has to go to the bathroom. Inside a stall, he opens up Instagram. There he is on the screen, covered in tomato soup. How could this be? Who filmed this? Below the video, a new picture has just appeared. It's him in his gym shorts. The caption reads, outfit change. Brian scrolls frantically through the feed, trying to find out who originally posted the video. He can't. It's been shared and reshared too many times. He notices his follower count has dropped. He doesn't want to go to class. He just wants it all to stop. He meets his sisters outside at the end of the day. Several students snap pictures as he walks by. Neither sister says a word. Brian knows why. Home was a safe place for Brian in 2008. Whatever happened at school stayed in school. Not now. Brian arrives at his house, heart thundering, and heads straight for his bedroom. He's supposed to be doing homework, but he can't concentrate. Alone in the dark, he refreshes his iPhone again and again and again and again. Twice during dinner, Brian escapes to the bathroom to check Instagram, and his parents don't mind. They're checking their own phones, too. Brian discovers that two new versions of the video have been released, and one is set to music, and the other one has a nasty narration. Both have lots of comments. He doesn't know how to fight back, so he just watches as the view counts rise higher and higher. His own follower count, his friend count, keeps going in the opposite direction. Brian doesn't want to be a part of this. He doesn't like this kind of thing. He can't skip it, though. It's not like the school dance. He can't tell a teacher this isn't happening at school. He stays up all night refreshing the feed, hoping the rising view count will start to slow. Mark is doing the same thing across town. He has lots of new followers. This is the best video ever. At 3 a.m., they both turn off their lights and stare up at their respective ceilings. Mark smiles. He hopes tomorrow something even more embarrassing happens to another kid. Then he can film that and get even more likes. Across town, Brian isn't smiling, but sadly, he's hoping for the exact same thing. This is a story by Benjamin Conlon. He's a middle school teacher, has been for a couple of decades. And through the transition or the advent of technology in our world, it has seen the impact of this. I share this story because it illustrates, and I it's, it was lengthy, so I apologize, I Thank you all for listening, but it illustrates two main things, really three. The first one is that the Brian from 2008 was wondering what his position was in the social hierarchy of his community. The Brian from 2018 knows or believes he does. For the first time in history, 
We can place a numerical value on our self-worth via how many likes, shares, and comments our content gets on social media. We can compare ourselves to our peers at any given moment with literal numbers and in real time. And number two, home is no longer a safe place. Hi, this is Bob of Bob Sloan Audio Productions. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast yourself? Do you have a desire to communicate an idea, opinion, or even a hobby or interest you'd like to share with the world? And do you have the communication skill and dedication? If so, let's talk. Send an email and a short description of your idea to bob at bobsloan.com. That's bob at b-o-b-s-l-o-n-e dot com. Now let's get back to the podcast. Brian couldn't leave this. 2008, he could leave it at school. Walk away. It was bad enough in 2008. But now home is not even safe. And really the third thing is that this kind of thing happening is now it was an asset for the other kid, for Mark. And so kids are becoming, they're wanting these kinds of things to happen because it's an asset for them and their social media content. So most of us believe that young people as digital natives are more internet savvy than we are because they're more technologically adept. After all, they're digital natives. That's what we call them. But au contraire. <laughs> There's a distinct difference between what we call technology literacy and information literacy. And just because I can get up on a horse doesn't mean I can ride that horse masterfully. And the same is true for digital natives. In fact, Stanford researchers found that students have trouble judging the credibility of information online. And one expert from Cyber and Homeland Security said in a Forbes article, fake news is an information literacy problem, not a technology problem. So just because they can easily get on the Internet and navigate smart devices doesn't mean that digital natives can intuitively spot scams avoid bad websites, protect their information, recognize a predator or a bully, or discern false information from truth. So what are the four main concerns, in my opinion, with technology? And I'm not going to dive into these too much. I've got lots of data and statistics, but we just don't have time. The first one is cyberbullying, and that's pretty self-explanatory. On what that is, it's between minors. It's intended to humiliate, taunt, embarrass one another. Uh, cyber bullies are usually motivated by a need for peer acceptance. There's lots more I can say about that. About 40% of females and 35% of males say that they've been cyber bullied in their lifetime. And there are approximately somewhere between 38 and 42 different types of cyber bullying. And the one that we just talked about that happened to Brian is called happy slapping. And that is only increasing um, where something embarrassing is record that happens to one student is recorded by another student, posted online, and it humiliates them and embarrasses them, but it gets shared widely. The next thing is predators. I don't have to go into a lot of details regarding predators. We all know stories of young people who are preyed upon in private messages, Instagram, that kind of thing. They're groomed um, for human trafficking, for just sending uh, nude photos and that kind of thing. There's a story from 2019 right here in South Carolina. An 11-year-old boy drove 200 miles to Charleston to try to meet somebody that he met on Snapchat, <laughs> an adult. Thankfully, he got lost and he stopped and pulled over when he found a police officer and told him what was going on and he was returned home safely. But that was right here two years ago in South Carolina, 11 years old, met somebody on Snapchat, got in his parents' car, drove 200 miles to meet that person. The third thing is pornography. 
According to research, the average age of first exposure is 13 years old, with the youngest exposure as early as five and the oldest at 26. Most men indicated that their first exposure was accidental or forced, about 60%. All right, so what about filters? The Oxford Internet Institute performed a study titled Internet Filtering and Adolescent Exposure to Online Sexual Material. That study was comprised of roughly 20,000 young people, ages ranging from 11 to 16 in the UK. And overall, they found that around 50% of all subjects had some sort of filter in their homes. And despite this, there was no discernible difference in the amount of pornography that they were exposed to. And the researchers estimated that there would need to be between 17 and 77 filters in place to prevent a single young person from being exposed to pornography. So if you think you can slap a filter on your computer and be good to go, full stop. You're dead wrong. Researchers were also surprised to find that households that actually had filters were more likely, not less likely, to have children who had been exposed to violent pornography, almost as if those who peddle porn were looking for homes that had filters in order to get their more violent material in front of those children. So the thing about porn is that it's predatory, not passive. And we have to change our mindset about pornography. We think that because that it's just something that our children might stumble upon if they go to the wrong website. They are striving to get their product in front of your child. You know why? Because if they can get it in front of your child, they can create an addict. And if they have an addict, they have a customer. And now they're making money. And it's always about the bottom line. So porn is predatory, not passive. And that brings me to my main point regarding filters. Filters are reactive, not proactive. And as technology advances, porn manufacturers only get better at circumventing filters. Filters are always a step behind. And then number four, as we saw in our story about Brian, the impact of social media. After remaining stable during the early 2000s, the prevalence of mental health issues among U.S. adolescents and young adults began to rise in the early 2010s. These trends included sharp increases in depression, anxiety, loneliness, self-harm, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, and suicide, with increases more pronounced among girls than boys. In 2009, about 50% of high schoolers set, visited a social media site every day. Three years later, by 2012, when smartphones became more widespread, today the number of high school seniors visiting a social media site each day has climbed to 85%. Psychologist Jean Twigg, she's with the San Diego State University, has headed multiple studies on this, po this topic, and she's also written a book called iGen. Last year, she published a study that sought to examine associations between different types of screen activities. So not just all screen but different types, and this was social media, internet, gaming, and television. And then she looked at the mental health indicators separately for boys and girls. So which of these were impacting boys and which were impacting girls more, and how were they impacting them? 
This study involved about 12,000 uh, 13 to 15 year olds in the UK asking about hours per day spent on specific screen media activities. And the four mental health indicators that they looked at were self-harm behavior, depressive symptoms, life satisfaction, and self-esteem. Hours spent on social media and internet use were more strongly associated with self-harm behaviors, depressive symptoms, low life satisfaction, and low self-esteem than hours spent on electronic gaming and TV watching. And here's the kicker. Girls generally demonstrated stronger associations between screen media time and mental health indicators than boys to the tune of 166%. Heavy internet users were 166 more likely to have clinically relevant levels of depressive symptoms than low users among girls. So when you're just talking about girls, if they're a heavy social media internet user, 166% more likely to have these negative self-image depressive anxiety symptoms. For boys, those who were heavy internet users and used the internet and social media to the same amount as the heavy uh, users for girls, only 75%. Now that's still bad, still atrocious, to be honest. But girls were more than double. And again, that goes back to my first point, or one of the first things I said, we're now in our culture for the first time in history, we're able to do what? Put a numerical value on our sense of self-worth. And that's especially impacting young females. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com.